What is going on? Happy Thursday. Welcome to the program. Pete Callender here on News Talk 1110 WBT. The phone numbers, as always, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. You can also email Pete at thepetecallendershow.com uh, and uh, follow me on Twitter at Pete Callender. Much like the P-tape at the center of the Steele dossier, more information trickling out now about the trans raid at Mar-a-Lago. The raid, not a raid. It's a raid. It doesn't identify as a raid. It's simply serving a search warrant. The hilarious video uh, I reposted on Twitter today uh, of MSNBC. They had somebody on, some talking head, who was lamenting the use of the term raid and saying it's serving a search warrant. They're, they're just serving a search warrant. It's not a raid. I mean, if we redefined recession, what chance did the word raid really have, right? So in real time, MSNBC changes the crawl, the chyron that's like at the bottom of the screen, you know, the text, changes it from FBI raid to FBI serves search warrant. So the guy is literally saying, we don't like the word raid. You should use this other term. And they complied. They immediately complied. I remember getting into arguments with law enforcement over the use of the word taser. They didn't like the use of the word taser. Because it's a, there's nobody, nobody tasers anybody because it's a taser. It's the name of the brand and whatever. I don't even remember what their hang up on it was. But we did not comply. It's the, it's the common understanding of what occurred when, when you tase somebody, right? It's kind of like Kleenex, right? When the brand becomes the thing. Anyway, we've got more information now. Everybody's all focused on, oh, there was somebody in the house that was a human intel source for the FBI telling them where the stuff was. Which is not very surprising to me, and if you listened to the program yesterday, shouldn't be surprising to you. Um, If you didn't listen to the program yesterday, well, that is quite surprising to me. Um, But it should not be surprising because we went over the history, sort of the timeline of what occurred in the run-up to the raid, not a raid, so we're calling it, it's a a trans raid. It doesn't identify as a raid. So uh, in the run-up to the trans raid, They had multiple meetings and conversations, and so the idea that uh, this should have been some sort of a a combative um, interaction or that people somehow would not comply or were not helping. And by the way, when I think this story came out of Newsweek, uh, and Newsweek, not exactly the most credible of sources any longer. I remember the days when it used to be, but it is not really anymore. Um, But I also wonder, is that just the information that the DOJ wants to leak out to you guys? Right? You want us to, you want us to hear, you want this narrative to calcify, you want uh, to put your story out there without the ability of anybody to question it, because that's the point of leaking anonymously these types of pieces of information is you don't want to have to explain it. You don't want to have to take any questions. You don't want any accountability, right? You just want to help to shape the narrative, to craft the storyline. And people in media, just because they want the clicks, they they need the clicks. That's how they survive. Uh, They will take that exclusive 
They'll take that and they'll put it on the website. They'll get all of the quicks, uh, clicks, the sweet, sweet clicks. And uh, then comes the money. Then comes the sugar. Uh, then comes the women. And uh, that's the I mean, that's the game. They use the media. Media uses them. Everyone's happy. Well, yeah, except Donald Trump and like a lot of the people that support him. Um, but who cares about Trump and all the people that support him, right? Now, one of the guys that I've been reading over the last uh, 48 hours, because I think he has some particular level of insight to this. I don't know how much. It's just a hunch that I have. A fellow by the name of John Solomon. You probably have heard of him, right? Started his website, justthenews.com. Does podcasts and the like. He's written a bunch of books. Um, he was sort of at the forefront of a lot of the, the cancellation of journalists. So, uh, because they were uncovering information. Remember, he's the one that got the, uh, uh, the warning labels or trigger warnings or whatever slapped on his articles. I forget what the topics were about, but it may have been about Trump or something, but, um, he had these warning labels slapped on uh, his work. I think it was over at Bloomberg at the time. And he was like an editor <laughs> of the, uh, whatever. So he he was sort of uh, the, the pointy point of the spear on a lot of the cancellation stuff. So John Solomon, why am I reading John Solomon in, in, with particular interest? Glad you asked. So this first story, and I mentioned a little bit of this story out of Politico yesterday, but I did not get to this last part. It's buried at the very end of this article at Politico. A day before Joe Biden's inauguration... Trump named seven administration officials as his representatives to the National Archives. Okay, so he picked seven people. And, I mean, I can run through. They list them here. You know, Mark Meadows and Cipollini, Cipollini, yeah, Pat Cipollini, uh, Patrick Philbin. These are his different deputies and attorneys and whatever. National Security Attorney John Eisenberg. So there are seven of these people, Okay. Now, it is unclear whether all seven of those officials remain authorized representatives for Trump, okay? And part of their job in the waning days of the, uh, the, the term, Trump's first term, was to sort of shepherd this process of classifying, declassifying, all of that stuff, and, and collecting the documents uh, and getting them ready for transport. Now, it's unclear whether... All of those seven officials remain authorized reps for Trump on this stuff. But they, we do know, and Politico reports, that they added, Trump added two additional representatives. One of them, former Pentagon official Cash Patel. The other, reporter John Solomon. So John Solomon has been part of this process, marking and not marking Right, classified stuff, or or seeing what's been uh, uh, been turned over to the National Archives, acting as a go-between. I, I don't think he has classified access or anything. So he's been part of this process. And once the president says this stuff is declassified, he has the power to do that. But what we apparently now know is that the the bureaucrats slow rolled the paperwork on this stuff. Why? Ah, good question. Glad you asked. John Solomon has some insight. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. 
Oh! I just saw a tweet from Brian Stelter, uh, who's a potato, uh, from CNN. He said, uh, Shannon Bream is taking the helm of Fox News Sunday. Congratulations, Shannon Bream. Not only a uh, uh, lawyer, uh, you know, talented TV personality and host and news person, like one of the nicest people you'll ever meet in your life. She used to work here in the building. Um, the network says a rotation of journalists will guest anchor Fox News at night until a permanent replacement is named. Um, all right. So uh, this is, uh, thank you, Andy. Uh, John Solomon was AP and was at the Hill. I think I said Bloomberg. He was at the Hill when he was blowing up the whole collusion hoax, the Russia collusion hoax. And Justin said Cash Patel worked with Solomon when he was chief for Devin Nunes at the beginning of the Spygate, Russiagate investigations when Republicans uh, were in the House majority. Right. So these two guys, obviously, they know a lot of the story about the Russia collusion hoax, right? And they've now been named by Trump as representatives for the National Archives. Do you think those two guys know what they're looking for? I do. I think they probably probably have unique insight into what exactly would be newsworthy or condemnatory, right? Damning evidence and what would be exculpatory, that kind of stuff. So John Solomon put out a story late yesterday, headline, Mystery Solved, DOJ Secretly Thwarted Release of Russia Documents Declassified by Trump. In the final hours of the Trump presidency, U.S. Justice Department, uh, the U.S. Uh, DOJ, raised privacy concerns to thwart the release of hundreds of pages of documents that Trump had declassified to expose FBI abuses during the Russia collusion probe. You follow that? So Trump was like, declassify all of this stuff about the Russia collusion probe because I want all of this out before I'm out, right? So they start going through all of this, and the DOJ, in the final hours of the presidency, the DOJ says, oh, I don't know if we can give you that. That's, uh, that's privacy concerns. Yeah, we got privacy concerns about some of this stuff. And it just so happens that our privacy concerns are about some of these documents and materials that uh, don't make us look very good. The agency then defied an order to release the materials after redactions were made. So even after they they corrected for the privacy concerns, the DOJ still wouldn't turn them over. The previously untold story of how highly anticipated declassified material never became public is contained in a memo obtained by justthenews.com, and it came from the National Archives. It was written by former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and it was written just a few hours before Donald Trump left office on January 20th, 2021. In the memo, Mark Meadows confirmed prior... uh, The memo confirms prior reporting that... On January 19th, day before he left office, Trump declassified a binder 
Not of women. Let's, I mean, he's no Mitt Romney here, people. Come on. He declassified a binder of hundreds of pages of sensitive FBI documents that show how the Bureau used informants and FISA warrants to spy on the Trump campaign and misled both the federal court and Congress about flaws in the evidence they offered to get approval for the investigation. The declassified documents included transcripts of intercepts made by the FBI of Trump aides, a declassified copy of the final FISA warrant that was approved by the FISA court, also the tasking orders and the debriefings of the two main confidential human sources, which were Christopher Steele and Stephen Halper, or Stefan Halper. I never knew how to pronounce that guy's name, and I don't care to pronounce, I mean, I don't care that much. The Bureau used to investigate whether Trump, that these are the two human uh, intel sources that the Bureau used to investigate whether Trump had colluded with Russia to steal the 2016 election, which, oh, by the way, I think is if it's not a majority, it's still darn near close to a majority of Democrats still believe that occurred. You want to talk about fake news and two Americas and how we have different sets of facts and reality. If you ask Democrats whether they think Russia stole the election and helped uh, 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 Donald Trump win, that they say yes. But no, no, yeah, I know. The democracy, you can't have Donald Trump talking about elections being stolen. In the end, multiple investigations found there was no collusion and that the FBI violated rules and misled the FISA court in an attempt to keep the probe going. Right, it was corrupt. The FBI was corrupt. They were being run by corrupt people. The investigation was undertaken by corrupted individuals. That's the word you're looking for in this case. It's corruption. Of the FBI. I'm not talking about corruption like, oh, here's an envelope full of money, you know, Pat Cannon style or Jim Black style. I'm, I'm talking about corruption of principles, corruption of process, corruption of ethics and the law. The documents that Trump declassified never saw the light of day, though, even though they were lawfully declassified by Trump and the DOJ was instructed by Trump to expeditiously release them after redacting the private information as necessary. So this is from John Solomon, who, again, Trump appointed as one of his representatives to deal with the National Archives, and that's where this memo was coming from. Is that what they were after? Are they doing a cleanup of the damning info? Welcome back to the program. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. So former chief of staff to Donald Trump, Mark Meadows, wrote a memo the day before the Trump uh, administration cleared out of the White House. And uh, in this memo, he wrote that White House lawyers had told him that the Department of Justice expressed last-minute concerns, privacy concerns, over a whole binder with hundreds of documents 
about the FBI's role and their actions in the Russia collusion hoax. And Trump had declassified. He said, just declassify all of this. Okay. And Meadows wrote the day before their last day on the job, or probably within 24 hours of them leaving, he said that these concerns about privacy were not legitimate because the executive office of the president was actually exempt from the Privacy Act. Huh. In the interview that uh, in, uh, Meadows gave an interview uh, to, uh, it doesn't matter, he, he was on, he, he did an interview, and he said uh, he agreed in the final minutes of the presidency to let the DOJ make redactions out of an abundance of caution and expected the DOJ would comply with Trump's order. Quote, we wanted to make sure that we didn't harm anyone, and so we gave them those declassified documents. I want to stress they were declassified documents, and they were to do a final redaction for some of that personal information with the instruction that they were to go ahead and disseminate those. We expected fully that they would do that. Anybody want to guess what they did not do? Mm Mm-hmm. Former Pentagon Chief of Staff Cash Patel, who worked as the Chief Investigative Counsel for the House Intelligence Committee when it unraveled the false Russia narrative under then-Representative Devin Nunes, Cash Patel said that the DOJ's defiance of a lawful presidential order only compounded the FBI's and the DOJ's failings during the original probe by preventing the American public from having transparency. He said... It's illegal to hide documents from publication through the FOIA process. If their uh, sole purpose is to cover up an embarrassment or unlawful activity, and uh, that is what's going on right now. That's what Patel said. It's illegal to hide documents from publication through the FOIA process if the sole purpose is to cover up embarrassment or unlawful activity, and that's what's going on right now. Then there's a quote here from Tom Fitton, who is the president of Judicial Watch, Watchdog Group. And he said that the documents in the binder are likely to be responsive to current lawsuits that his group has pending at the DOJ and the FBI for what? Russia collusion documents. And this memo that Mark Meadows wrote the day before they left office may make it easier to persuade a court to take action. He said he believes DOJ is still trying to protect their own in terms of the corruption involving the targeting of Trump during the Russia probe. Notably, Fitton's group, Judicial Watch, was involved in litigation that resulted in the court ruling years ago that the White House was exempt from the requirements of the Privacy Act. And he said the DOJ's last-minute effort to raise the issue to stop the release of the declassified documents smacked of bad faith. DOJ, quote, did the runaround to try to protect themselves from being exposed because the documents, to be clear, relate to the improper targeting of Trump and his associates that we know is based on politics and animus as opposed to national security or anything substantive. These were documents that were made available pursuant to the president's lawful authority, and in the end, the FBI came up with a lie, which is that the Privacy Act was implicated in the release of these documents by the White House, and that was not the case. Later on in this pretty lengthy piece over at JustTheNews.com, 
Meadows says that if the documents are finally released, they will provide compelling evidence that congressional Democrats and FBI leaders who assured the public there was a Russia-Trump conspiracy actually knew what they were saying was untrue. Huh. Is this all true? I don't know. But I kind of trust John Solomon on this stuff. Definitely more than the FBI after what they pulled with Crossfire Hurricane. So... Meanwhile, FBI Director Christopher Wray finally uh, had a comment about all of this. And he was doing some sort of appearance, uh, an appearance or something, and uh, he made some comments, uh, which was to say no comment. He says, I'm sure you can appreciate that's not something I could talk about. But he did weigh in on the, uh, the death threats now that uh, some of the, uh, or the judge that issued the warrant uh, that that judge is now receiving. He said, any threats made against law enforcement, including the men and women of the FBI, as with any law enforcement agency, are deplorable and dangerous. Violence against law enforcement is not the answer, no matter what anyone's upset about or who they are upset with, unless they, you are protesting a Supreme Court justice about uh, the road decision. Or maybe a crisis pregnancy center. <clears throat> I think that's the carve out. It's in the law. Look, I don't make these rules. No, of course you should not be threatening violence against people. This is the nice thing about having a consistent standard, as I do. Right? You, you should not be threatening violence against people. Particularly, um, you know, judges, especially when that's against the law, or I guess against the law for some people. This is what I mean, folks. On the left, you're not going to like it when the other team gets an at-bat. Speaking of the judge, the uh, federal magistrate who authorized the raid, this is also according to John Solomon, um, six weeks ago he had to recuse himself from a lawsuit. Why? Well, it was a lawsuit brought by Donald Trump against Hillary Clinton. Is that odd to you? that odd it's a little odd it's odd to me trump is suing hillary clinton and other democrats over the russia collusion scandal and the judge in that case six weeks ago recused himself and that same judge then issued the search warrant for trump's house bruce reinhardt u.s magistrate judge west palm beach florida appointed in 2018 filed the recusal document on June 22nd, a few weeks after presiding over the start of the case. Reinhardt signed the search warrant authorizing the Mar-a-Lago search on August 5th. So, gosh, like what, three weeks after you recuse yourself because you can't be impartial in the case? And that is what he cited, by the way. It was over impartiality concerns. So you recuse yourself from the case... And then turn around and do a search warrant on one of the participants in the case. And by the way, his impartiality, it was not in the direction of pro-Donald Trump. I know, that's going to be a shocker.
So the federal magistrate judge that authorized the raid, sorry, the trans raid on Mar-a-Lago this week, not only did he have connections to Jeffrey Epstein, some of the employees, Epstein's employees, after he, remember, he he was a uh, he was a prosecutor and then immediately turned around, like gave his notice, was off the job on January 1 and then went to work for Epstein's employees on January 2, got in some trouble for that. And then became a U.S. magistrate judge after like 10 years or something in private practice, I think. In 2018, he becomes this judge. And uh, he was overseeing a case that had started up, I don't know when, months ago. But he had to recuse himself on this case that Donald Trump brought against Hillary Clinton and others over their role in the Russia collusion scandal. He had to recuse himself. The statute that he cited for his recusal states in part that a judge, quote, shall disqualify himself in any proceeding in which his impartiality might reasonably be questioned and then describes the various circumstances that could trigger such concerns. They include, quote, a personal bias or prejudice concerning a party or personal knowledge of disputed evidentiary facts or prior work as a lawyer for a party involved in the case. Now, Reinhardt did not specify the conflict or the source of his concern for the recusal. But what else could it be? He didn't work for the Clintons at some point, right? But his impartiality might reasonably be questioned due to what? Personal knowledge of disputed evidentiary facts? No. A personal bias or prejudice concerning one of the parties. Let's go to social media, shall we? Oh, look at that. There you go. Daily Wire raises questions about Reinhardt's impartiality towards Trump. 2017 Facebook social media post a year before he was named a magistrate and before he started overseeing the case that he had to recuse himself from, he challenged Trump's moral character after Donald Trump attacked the late Congressman John Lewis. Right? So Reinhardt said, I generally ignore the president-elect's tweets. John Lewis arguably has done more to make America great than any living citizen. Last August, I took my son to the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma so he could understand the kind of courage and sacrifice required to live in a democratic society. John Lewis embodies that spirit, although I've never met him. He's one of my heroes. Donald Trump doesn't have the moral stature to kiss John Lewis's feet. So that was the judge that they got in the case. Trump suing Hillary over the Russia collusion hoax. Judge had to recuse himself. All right. Uh, The lawsuit accuses Clinton, Democrat allies, and current and former government officials of engaging in a racketeering conspiracy to falsely portray Trump as colluding with Russia during the 2016 election. The sweeping nature of the suit involves numerous parties and public figures. The recusal filing emerges as numerous media reports have now surfaced that the magistrate's prior work, including donations, before he was judge, that he made to Obama as well as Jeb, with the exclamation point, Jeb Bush. 
and worked for figures associated with the late sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Who didn't kill himself. The Daily Wire also raised questions about Reinhardt's impartiality towards Trump, citing the social media post. I'm sure it's just coincidence, though, right? At, at some point, you realize it's not raining. That's urine. Um, got this email from Clay to Pete at the PeteCallanerShow.com. Uh, Pete, I saw a report this morning comparing the Trump and Obama presidencies and the information that each left uh, each left with after their administration had ended. We now know that Trump took 13 boxes, but have yet to hear the actual number of documents or pages that those boxes contained. When Obama left office, we know that he took 30 million pages of documents, which he promised to digitize and put online. Seven years later, no documents have been digitized, says Clay. And Obama has used the Presidential Records Act to hide his administration's rampant corruption. I hope people are waking up to this. Keep fighting the good fight, Pete. That is from Clay. Um, I also saw a tweet from Mark Elias. Yeah, Mark Elias, the Democrat lawyer that sues over every election law that might make it more difficult for Democrats to win. Uh, it's taken a particular interest in North Carolina politics for the last oh, decade or so. He was also a nexus point here in the Russia collusion story, right? Because he was the his law firm, Perkins Coie, at the time, they was acting as the go-between, the sort of the bag man to bring in these, uh, these human sources like uh, Christopher Steele. Yeah, he had an interesting take on this. Stay tuned. 